Good morning. Well, 90% of the audience this morning went to bed at 4. Not my normal Sunday morning audience, but I'm totally prepared. We are going to do the jig. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Hey, you know, as an outside, what is the jig anyway? I don't know. It just came to me all of a sudden, and I said it. Um, you know, as an outsider looking in, this, I do not go to church here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from a different city. And um, um, as an outsider looking in, I just want to say that I have never been a part of a weekend for junior high and high school um, students that has been so well prepared and pray o- prayed over as this. And uh, that's an attribute to Wade and Caleb. And um, I just... Again, from an outsider looking in, you, this is, um, these are two guys you don't want to lose. And uh, <laughs> I, I kept getting these emails and, 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 and um, yeah, the, the curriculum, the way they just went about it, their interaction with myself, and, uh, man, top notch. And I love recommending this church to, to my friends. And so I just wanted to just say thanks to you two guys first and foremost. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about the world Christian. Now, just to catch those up who are over the age 18, um, what we've been doing all weekend is we've been looking at um, the first night, Friday night, we looked at examining ourselves. How do we know that we're really in Christ? Because there's a lot of misconceptions. Some people think they're in Christ because of the family they belong to, the rules they keep, the works that they do, or the knowledge they possess. And we looked at each one of those and how wrong those were. And how what it means to be in Christ is John seventeen three that they know God and the Son, his Son, whom he had sent. And then last night, what we did was we looked at what it means now that we are a Christian. And, and what are we supposed to walk towards? The whole disciple and this new creation disciple maker. And this morning, we're going to look at how it expands even farther than that. That God wants us to have a global mindset. That we are to be a globally minded Christian and what that means. Because I know for me, growing up, I thought, I thought they were two types of Christians, okay? I thought they were the goers and the wavers. And I was a waver, you know? It's like, all right, have fun in China, you know? I, I'm doing my part. And I thought that, you know, if, if God hadn't specifically given you a liver quiver to cross a geographical salt body of water, that you were kind of just... The guy that cheers them on, and when they come home, you maybe let them borrow your car. And that was kind of what you did, you know? So there was the goer and the wavers. And man, this morning, I want to show you that that is completely wrong. That everyone in this room has a unique part to play in this global process. And for some, it might be crossing salt water. For others, it might be crossing the neighborhood. And for others, it might be digging deep and giving um, financially. For others, it might be mobilizing and raising the awareness. And so we're going to look at this whole concept of the globally-minded Christian. What do we mean by the term world Christian? Now, now don't get confused. We're not talking about a worldly Christian. But a world Christian is this. A, A world Christian is a Christian who has discovered the truth and need of God's unfulfilled global purpose to reach all peoples. They've had that aha moment. Something in them, whether it was a one weekend whether it was hearing a story of a missionary back on, on furlough. Maybe it was going through and reading the book Radical and coming across that incredible chapter on God's mission's vision. Maybe it was going on a short-term trip, but, 
there's many ways that you kind of get involved, but, but for the globally-minded Christian, they have had that aha moment where it's like, whoa, I'm responsible. This affects the way I act, think, pray, and believe. And as I mentioned before, there are four or five different roles. We could probably list 20 different roles. But for the sake of this morning, I just wanted to give you a few to say, man, as, as the life around you is, is, is asking for your time and talents and money and abilities, what does the Bible say about how we should view life and how we should view this whole idea of being a globally minded Christian? So this morning, we're going to look at the goer. What exactly is a goer? What qualifies a goer? We're going to look at the welcomer. What is a welcomer? What's a prayer? What's a sender? What's a mobilizer? So the goer, here we go. Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read this passage, and as I read it, I want you to recognize how many times God refers to himself. Okay? It's nine. I'm going to pre-tell you. It was a late night, right? The onesies took, took a long time. And, and so, how many times does God refer to himself? How many times does God refer to Moses? Watch this. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. How many times has God referred to himself? Nine. How many times has God referred to Moses? One. One time. Nine times God says, I have seen, I have heard, I have felt, I have witnessed, I observe one time he says moses go nine to one ratio next verse (laughs) that's great that you care god it's just i don't (laughs) wow how did i get roped into this Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Nine to one ratio. And Moses hones in on what? We go back to that you word. Watch what God does. Moses, it's not about your abilities, but about your availability. I will be with you. The promise of the presence of God is what allows us to embark on our journey. Not because you're qualified in all these different ways. Not because you're sinless. That's the same promise he gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go to the land I will show you. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. That's the same promise he gave to Joshua. As you go into the land and drive out the 31 distinct kings, I will be with you. And that's the same command he gave Solomon. Build this temple, and as you do it, my presence will go before you. And that's the same thing Jesus says in Matthew 28. Go therefore... All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, I'll be with you. That's where we get our strength, our power, our faith. Not from our abilities. If it was based on our abilities, we'd have like one to two missionaries on the planet sent out from the American church. When I was in college, a friend of mine named Kevin said to me, Todd, I want you to go with me to North Sudan to the base of the Nuba Mountains where the Muslims and Christians are fighting. Uh, I said, Kevin, I'm not ready. He's like, that's okay, you got 20 minutes. 
I'm like, I need seven years. He's like, why seven? I was like, I don't know. Seven's a spiritual number. I think it means heaven. <laughs> I just threw it out, right? Why? Because I was looking at my abilities instead of availabilities. K.P. Yohannan says, if you've been a believer longer than nine weeks, you probably know more than to be able to train Chinese pastors. Think about this. For some in this room, junior high, high school, and adults, all of us, for some in this room, God might want us to go for two weeks. For some, he might want us to step out for two years. For some, he might want us to go for life. I don't know. But all of us in this room can be from XNA to Beijing in 17 hours. We, we, we live in a world that going for two weeks is doable for every believer. And then you can come back and sort that stuff out. Well, as I've traveled the U.S. for the last 10 years, I've just kind of put a pulse down on why is it that we have such few goers? Why is it that we have so many waivers and such few goers? And I've kind of figured out these six reasons when you get down to it that people have a hard time getting on a plane and going. The first is family. For some in this room, your family's pushing you towards that. For some, your family's holding you back. What do you do when God says go and parents say no? That's a very tangible issue that we must wrestle with, that you must wrestle with, that you must pray through and think through. What about this? If you want to be a missionary, don't marry a Christian. You'll never make it. Well, who should we marry? You should marry a globally-minded Christian. There's so many people who will say and parrot whatever they want just to put a ring on your finger. If you're thinking about going long-term, you need to marry a world Christian, not just a Christian. What about this one? This is another major issue that we come across, bad theology. At the end, everybody kind of goes to heaven. That's, that's what a lot of people think in the church. However, Christ has a very unique road. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4, 12, there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so it really makes me not have to be a goer if at the end of the day, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, you know, and the tribal worlds will end up in heaven. But it's completely different when I look at the words of Christ and I say, wow, I must think, pray, and act differently. I have no call. That's another huge issue, right? I ask people who say to me, oh, I don't really have a call. What would it look like if it came? Uh, Gabriel at my bed. Okay, that's an option. I know that's happened to like no one. You know, but let's keep that as the bar. That's cool. That's cool. What would a call look like? Here's what I, fi- here's what I figured out. First of all, many wouldn't know a call if it came. We're not even looking for it. Second of all, maybe a call is simply hearing a message from the pastor that pierces your heart. Maybe a call is simply reading a book that changes your view. Maybe a call is meeting someone who has responded in obedience and you just want to go, wow, I can do that too. Maybe a call is watching a video of the needs of the world and just it cripples you to your knees. Maybe that's a call. Maybe. Support raising, man, this, this is going to take out a lot of people. I've realized support raising is not unbiblical as much as it is un-American. And then the final reason, debt. It's very difficult as these young adults who venture off into college, and I just did the math because, um, you know, I have three kids now, and there's, they're age one, two, and three, and so I'm a pretty cool guy. And um, uh, 
I just did the math. You can go to UCLA.com and put in your child's projection date of when they'll be a freshman. And so just get encouraged. Um, I did that. I, I put in um, UCLA. My daughter will be a freshman in 2024. Isn't that weird? And, um, and it does the math for you. It says UCLA will then cost, by that time, 312000 And you're like, huh, U of A. <laughs> you know? <laughs> 13. Okay, I know where she's going. <laughs> I mean, this is like, how do you just, how can you go? How can you sin? How can you pray if you're like crippled by debt? The goer. And let me just tell you this. Historically, every major missions movement has been launched by young adults. There is something about the passion, the adventure spirit, and almost the faith of junior high and high school students that launches them out and God uses them to lead many to Christ and to launch many turning points in history. We looked at this last night. First Timothy, do not let anyone look down on you for in your youth. Welcomer. What is a welcomer? What does it mean a welcomer? You know, it's one thing when the nations are across the ocean. It's another when they're across the street. It's another when you play on the soccer team with them or basketball team. It's another when they sit in class with you and you're like, wow, this is wild. What is a welcomer? Here's a word I came across recently. Arachibutrophobia. And, you know, I know you guys, for the three that don't know what that means, I'll just tell you. Um, it's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. So that is an actual phobia. And I've known seven people who've dealt with it. They've sought counseling, and now they're okay. So don't worry about it. Um, this is my favorite phobia. Hippopotamonstrous quadriphilophobia. And that's, a, that's an interesting phobia. It's the uh, phobia of long words. You fear long words. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? But it literally is like when you're reading a book and you come across a long word and you have a panic attack. There are people who do that so they can't read. That's what they struggle with. This is what they're diagnosed with. And so if they can get over this word, they've, they've won. <laughs> Xenophobe. The fear of foreigners. Now, I have a friend of mine who went to a conference on how to welcome internationals. And he wasn't really sold on it, but he actually he flew there. He took a taxi to the, to the hotel. He went to the conference, took a taxi back, and then um, flew home. And he said to me, I talked to him afterwards. He's like, Todd, I had no idea there was this many foreigners. First of all, the, the, there was an Afghanistan guy that picked me up from the airport in the taxi and took me to my hotel. Second of all, there was a Filipino woman that made up my bed every morning that I, I, uh, I saw in the hallway. Third of all, there was, there was a, you know, a Singaporean guy that was cooking all the meals. He's like, at the international conference, we were served completely by internationals, not because they did it on purpose. So if you suffer from xenophobia, you're going to be house-ridden from here on out because the world is here. The world is at our door. And how are we to respond? There are 750,000 international students and scholars studying here from 188 countries of the world. If you talk to these junior high and high school students about how diverse their class is, I mean, you'd be like, whoa, I had no idea. I mean, it's pretty diverse. Think about this, 750,000. And what are they they being welcomed to? Do they hear the gospel? Well, 90% of them never get invited to an American home. And so they just stay within their beehive, their enclave of their own culture. What does the Bible say about welcoming internationals, the foreigner, the alien? He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. 
Remember when you were in Egypt and I took care of you when you were in a foreign land under Pharaoh and your shoes never wore out and your, your stomachs never grew hungry? In the same way, when foreigners come to you, I want you to love them as yourself. The foreigner living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. And then he reverts back to what? For you were an alien, a foreigner in Israel, in, from Israel. Do not oppress the foreigner. For you yourselves know how it feels to be a foreigner. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. Now, I did some research, and of the 750,000, I just wanted to take the top 10 countries that we're studying here in our classrooms to see where they come from. Who's number one? Who's number two? Who are some of these top 10 countries that are in our backyard that when you go to Marketplace and eat, they're the ones that you're waiting behind? You're like, man, hurry up. Who are they? Here's the top 10. India. 850 million people, mass majority, are Hindu. China has almost 70,000 internationals here. 1.1 billion Chinese. Almost all but 50 to 60 million are atheistic. Korea, Japan, highly Buddhist. Taiwan, Buddhist. Canada, use our currency. Mexico, Turkey, 99.9% of Turkey is Muslim. Indonesia, the largest Muslim country on the planet. Thailand, one of the most Buddhist places you could go. And guess where they're at? Your high schools, your junior highs, your cubicles. Do you say hello or do you ignore them? Do you learn how to pronounce your name correctly? Or you just tell them, hey, dude, I'm going to change it up. What's up, bro? With a welcomer. A friend of mine named Hudson comes to me his senior year at University of Arkansas. And he says, Todd, I totally want to live off campus. It's my senior year, man. This is like when I get a kitchen. <laughs> you know, and he was so pumped because he could move out of the dorms in with some friends and have a kitchen. And he says, but man, I feel like God wanted me to go to the international dorm on campus, Holcomb, and live there. That's where all the internationals are. I mean, it's like the, the aroma capital of the, just all the flavors of their, their, um, their, their, their cooking. And he's like, man, I just want to go there. and Maybe God would have me my senior year um, lead some guys to Christ. So I said, man, Hudson, you should go. You know, I just kind of validated what God had put on his heart to go to Holcomb. He meets this Chinese guy, and um, through the course of the semester, this Chinese guy comes to Christ. The Chinese guy goes back Christmas break and leads his mother to Christ. The Chinese guy joins a church in Fayetteville and gets baptized. The Chinese guy says, how can I expand my ministry on campus? He joins a fraternity. There's no Chinese in any fraternity on the planet. He joined a fraternity so that he could get in with these 70 guys and have a ministry. He then goes to, to his home church now and says, hey, I'd like to be on the missions team this summer, he raises support and he goes to Thailand on the team. This summer, the church has asked him to be the leader of the mission trip to China, and he's taking 10 people. And you go, man, are internationals on our campuses 
a mission field or are they a missions force? Do you say hello? Do you care? Or do you just kind of live in your own little world? How diversified is your Facebook? Be pretty cool, wouldn't it? If it was pretty diversified. Oh, my friend Muhammad. Except, <laughs> you know, uh, honey, you have a friend named Muhammad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The prayer. If you, if you could ask God to teach you anything, the disciples, they could ask him to teach him anything. And I think for me, it'd be like, oh, man, will you show me that coin in the fish mouth? <laughs> you know, will you show me the, like, multiplying the bread? That would be pretty sweet, man. Ready? One, two, three. What do they say? What's the one thing the disciples ask Jesus to teach them? Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because I think when they saw Christ pray and steal away, that they saw things happen. Now, today, the average Christian prays two minutes a day. And if you think about it, I think that's pretty high. We don't pray even nearly two minutes a day. But even what the nature of our requests are, the nature of our requests are about us. I mean, 99% of our prayer revolves around our own issues, family, or job, or finances. But in all of Scripture, Jesus only asked his disciples to pray for one thing. This is not an unspoken prayer request. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I want you to pray for one thing. What is that one thing? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask. Ask. I really thought it said make a t-shirt. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, make a t-shirt. And put a verse on the back. No. Ask. Beseech. Lift up the request to God that he would connect the mass amount of laborers to where the harvest is few. To where there aren't, there's no one going. Ask. What would it look like in our own life if we'd lifted up our request and said, man, we want to pray for our family, our life, our stuff, but also we want to add to this kind of this other idea to say, God, where are you working among the nations? What's going on in Egypt? What's going on in Bahrain? I want to watch the world news with purpose. The prayer. The person who mobilizes the church to pray will make the largest contribution in history to world evangelization. Think about that. When, the, when there's a meeting in the church on evangelism and the evangelism guy's like, oh man, I'm so bummed. Only like 15 showed up for evangelism outreach today at church. When he feels bad, do you know where he goes? He walks down the hall to the prayer meeting. <laughs> you guys only got two, him and his wife. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I feel much better now because at least I had 15. What would it look like if the church was a church of praying? And then sending. We've looked at going, the goer, that aspect, the welcomer, do you welcome internationals? The prayer, will you lift up your request to God? And then the sender. The sender is someone who's literally holding the ropes and helping the goer get to where they are and help keep them on the field. So as, as you know, 
here's my question, and, and you just think about it. Which one's more important, okay? If you have a well, and down in the well is a two-year-old girl stuck, which one's more important? Which one's, like, the best role to have? Is it the guy that's holding the rope, or is it the guy that shimmies down to the well to grab the two-year-old? You know, think about that. Which one is, like, the most valuable of the two? The guy holding the rope, or the guy shimmying down to the base to get the two-year-old? And the answer is that you need both. Why? Because if you only have the guy holding the rope, it's going to be a while before she can grow up and grab it. And if you only have the guy who jumps down in the well, you have two that's stuck. Both are important. You're not more spiritual because you fly over salt water. And matter of fact, that was the rule of the Israelite army. The share of the man who stays with the supplies, who protects them, and who allows them to get to the front lines is to be the same as that of him who went down to battle. All will share alike. Now, there's a clog in the drain, though. And the clog in the drain is affluence. Because affluence will blind you to giving. It will, it will really deceive you on how much you can do. And especially young adults junior high and high school students i mean graduation from high school does not equal generosity i had a friend of mine who went to a support appointment and asked the parents to come on his team and the seven-year-old was listening the whole time and afterwards the parents called him and said hey my seven-year-old would like to give a one-time gift of some of his allowance for the year generosity doesn't equal just after you graduate Unfortunately, what happens is today, if a family makes $70,000 a year, they spend seventy four. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. Yeah, and that equals debt. And you're not going to give if you're, look, if you're overspending. Today, Christians spend more money on dog food than missions. And I like pets. I do. But think about how much energy, time, and money... We spend on dog food versus helping get the missionaries to the field. Helping to build the church. My husband just signed an $89 million contract he'd held out for a long while before signing. The management would not match the $91 million offered by another team. The Yankees did not budge. When I saw him walk in the house, I immediately knew they did not succeed in persuading them to move up. From $89 million to $91 million, he felt so rejected. It was one of the saddest days of our lives. Money is deceiving. And when you look at this and you're like, oh my goodness, are you kidding? I could live fine off $40 million. I hear you. <laughs> and I'm saying the same thing. I'm like, dude, why is, he, why is he mad? You know, I could understand if it was in the 40s. And then all of a sudden I meet my friend from Ethiopia who's in charge of Nomads for Christ. And he says to me, hey, Todd, if you get a chance, I could use some prayer. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, we have 12 staff ready to be deployed to southern Ethiopia to work with the nomads. But... They have to raise $20 a month, and I just don't. It's, it's not coming in. Guess who is now the Yankees baseball player to my friend from Ethiopia? Me. So as I mock and laugh and go, oh, my gosh, that would never be me, guess what the rest of the planet says about me? Actually, it is. <laughs> Donald Trump was being interviewed one of the richest people on the planet. He was being interviewed 
And the, the interviewer says, why is it that you wake up every day, seven days a week, you put on a suit coat, you go, you go to work for 10 hours a day, and you're one of the richest people on the planet. Why is that? And Donald Trump looks at the interviewer, and he looks at the camera, and he looks at the interviewer, and he looks at the camera, and dead on straight in the camera, he says this. I just want a little more. I just want a little more. And that's what happens. And so when people come to us to be senders, to say, hey, would you give sacrificially? We just kind of go, you know what? I don't have. I don't have. But to be honest, maybe we do. We're just using it differently. See, we ask, how much do you give? Jesus asks, how much did you keep? It's a little different. The sender. What would it look like for you, no matter where your finances come from, maybe it's an allowance or maybe it's, who knows, mowing lawns. What would it look like for you to give sacrificially? And finally, the mobilizer. What is a mobilizer? A mobilizer is someone who has a passion for the world and a passion to pass it on. Where do missionaries come from? You ever ask that question? There's a missionary tree out in Bella Vista, and they grow on it, and then when they blossom, we pick them, and then we send them. It's really a cool tree. You should see it. Um, it's just north of here. Um, no, they don't come off trees. Where, where do missionaries come from? They come from within the church, from being mobilized. They come from hearing, reading, seeing, watching. They come from bottom up. They, they just, But they have to come from somewhere. And a mobilizer is someone who says this. I want to make sure that God's heart for the world is on my heart. What burns in his burns in mine. And I want to see missionaries raised up. And so you take them from zero to zealot. And again, how do you mobilize? Maybe it's using videos. Maybe it's using talks. Maybe it's using Bible studies. Maybe it's using books. But the mobilizer is someone who says, man, God's heart for the world is on my heart. The Lord said to Habakkuk, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. Look at this. The Lord said, record the vision. Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a vision of a nation, and it's not a good vision in this context. But I want you to write down the vision and make it plain so that others can read it and respond. He says, man, as God has placed in your heart a burden, you write that down, you think about it, and then you figure out how you can pass it on and simplify it so that others can catch a heart for the world as well. What would it look like if... The building was on fire, and you ran down the street and woke up the sleeping fireman instead of trying to put it out yourself. That's the mobilizer. The mobilizer says, man, where are the sleeping firemen? And I want to raise them up and show them the world is ablaze and that they can go to it. So my wife gave me a, an easy task. I thought it was easy. She said, Todd, I'm going to run in harps. You stay here with our three kids. I'm like, Done. So they're in the back. I've got three car seats across, so it's kind of fun. I mean, there's fish crackers everywhere. You know, there's fr nasty fries and places and ketchup. I mean, you know, the average random car that has three kids, three and under. And um, so here I am. I'm actually, I've got them pretty set, right? Like I'm, I'm flicking fish crackers to them, and they're catching them, you know. And, and I'm kind of playing the cool dad role. And uh, so anyway, I got some time. I take off my wedding ring, and I just, you know, I do the wedding ring flip. And, you know, it's kind of cool. Guys do it randomly, wedding ring flip. And then I, 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 <laughs> I just went, and it hit my thumb weird. Yeah. I know. I missed it. The wedding ring flip. 
I'm in. And it goes into the crevice of despair. You know, the crevice of despair next to the seat in the console that you can only peer down. And I, I, I can't even see it. Like, I think it's shining down there next to the ketchup wrapper, but I don't know. And seriously, I, I go, it's going to hurt. But I cannot tell my wife I lost the wedding ring in the, in the crevice of despair. So I'm like, one, you know what I'm going to do? Two, three. Ah! You know, like all the way down. Like, ah! You know, it's like, it's like the seat rotator cuts and I ah! and I pull out the parking ticket and I'm like oh man this totally stinks you know and so I get out of the car it's like daddy where are you going not now you know and I get out of the car and I'm like ah! you know you follow me it's like ah! I go around back the back seat I'm like I can't believe I'm spending my time doing this while my wife is buying chips at Harps. I mean, it's one of those moments where you're like, who am I and why am I here? And then I have a thought. I pull out my daughter Camden, that's three, and I say, Camden, you see that shiny thing down there? Will you grab it? And she goes, sure, Dad. And in that moment, I realized something. Little fits where big doesn't. Little fits where big doesn't. It's not the Wade and the Caleb's and the pastors and stuff that say, oh, if I can get them in front of my my friends, they'll be mobilized. It's you on the ground level who God's given you these relationships who might not be able to tell you what a Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Chinese, and a tribal person believes. But God has given you a relationship with them, and you fit where maybe the big doesn't. You can mobilize right where you're at. You can mobilize right where you're at. The question is, will you? What if every Christian was this globally-minded world Christian? How would that impact the way we act, pray, think, and believe? How would that, act, how would that look like? What would that look like to outsiders? And then, what if every world Christian was a mobilizer? What if every new believer that came into this church had the opportunity to get mobilized, to say, man, God loves the world, and he loves you, and you need to connect the dots? And so, uh, this morning, I don't know where you at, but I, I will say this. Everybody's involved. It's not the goers, it's not the waivers. It's world evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. Everybody's involved. So how are you doing? Which one do you go, man, I really naturally find myself enjoying this. And then which one do you say, man, I could work on this because I don't really like it. Maybe God has given you just a knack to meet people and you need to just meet internationals. Maybe God has given you the desire to cross oceans and you need to continue doing that. Where are you in this whole world Christian globally minded person? How can you move? From zero to zealot. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer is that 
no matter how big we are or how little we are in this room, that we would be able to make plain your mission to reach all nations and your method using people. And so I just ask that you would raise up from this room goers, welcomers, prayers, senders, mobilizers. We pray that we would have a part to play, that we would know it and that we would walk in it. We ask this in your son's name.